1: And welcome to the Door County Pulse Podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, editor and writer for the Peninsula Pulse. And today my guests are Laurel Hauser, who is the vice president of the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation, and Beth Renstrom, who is the executive director of the Greenery Project. So put those two things together and guess what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Laurel. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Deb. So we're going to jump right into this. The granary project, if uh, you lived in Sturgeon Bay, then you're probably listening right now to some piles being driven in. I understand there are going to be like 51 different piles driven in before the foundation is put onto the pilings. And then... The building is going to be moved about 50 feet to its final resting place. So really, you're under construction right now. And what I wanted to do is just go back in time to 1901 when this building was first constructed. Can you, Beth, talk a little bit about the history of this building and why it's so important to preserve it?
2: Sure. Thanks, Deb. Well, this building goes back even before 1901 with the Tulis and Brandeis families, and they were both immigrant families from Prague. Came over to mid to the end of the 1800s, and Moses Thules came over when he was 22. When he was 16 years old, living in Czechoslovakia, there was a revolution. It was 1948, and if you think about that, it was a it was a revolution, and it was um, they were still a feudalistic society over there. And so 1848 is the same year that Wisconsin became a state. So if you think about the differences in that, they had to be part of parishes, they had to be a part of a manor, you had to get permission if you wanted to marry someone outside of your parish or outside of your manor. And, you know, the contrast between those two. Places, Wisconsin just becoming a state and, and, you know, we all talk about America being the land of opportunity, but having that and, you know, coming from a, a place where pretty much your every movement was controlled by someone else. So when he was 22, he left Prague and came to the United States through New York and then on to uh, Milwaukee and then slowly moved up North along the lake front along Lake Michigan, uh, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, And when he was in Manitowoc, he had a store that was a grocery store, and down the street from him, there was a general store that was run by Jonas Brandeis. And eventually, Jonas Brandeis, his nephew, who also came over from Prague, married Moses Tulis's daughter, Fanny. So they Mm -hmm. fell in love, so that's where kind of the connection between the two families was made. Maybe they knew each other in, in Czechoslovakia. We, we, you know, we're not sure about that. We're still investigating and learning more and more about the history all the time. But uh, eventually Moses made his way up to Sturgeon Bay after the shipping canal came through and business was booming up here. So he started a store up here. Isidore and Fanny were living in Milwaukee. And he convinced them to come up and help him with his business up in Sturgeon Bay. So they came up the late... 1800s. And uh, Isidore was really a mover and shaker. He had a very successful business in Milwaukee that he left behind. His mom was in Milwaukee. She had eventually come over as well to join him. And uh, he became partners with Moses. And so Moses and his son, Arthur and Jeffrey, between them, they started what was eventually to become the Toulouse and Brandeis granary. And they owned two granaries. So there was actually at one point in time, there were eight granaries in The Door County area, four of those were in Sturgeon Bay. And so, Tulis and Brandeis owned two, one on the east side of the bay, and the one that is currently the Door County granary on the west side of the bay. And they built that in 1901. And at that point in time, Arthur, Tulis, and Isidore Brandeis were partners. Moses had passed away, and that's when they really started really growing, growing the business. That's really interesting. So, do we know what happens with the other granaries? And with the other granary buildings? I mean, over time, there just wasn't a, a use after the granaries went out of the, the old wooden granary, which was actually, you know, granaries have been around for thousands of years. And they've essentially been the same thing. They're a box that's elevated. It keeps critters out. It keeps airflow. And they, you know, they've found granaries back to like 11,000 B.C. pre-domestication. But the grain elevator was invented in the United States in the mid-1800s. So it's an American invention, and it was one of the things that helped contribute to the United States becoming the breadbasket to the world. We had the ability to grow all this grain, but there was limited ability to store it and to distribute it. Uh, The grain elevator changed all that. It took the work of three men in a a day's work of three men and it could do what they did in an hour and just the capacity to store that grain was you know exponentially grown so our granary the door county granary could hold up to 30,000 bushels of grain That type of grain elevator, that wooden grain elevator, was only built for a short period of time, probably until about the 1910s, 1920s. Then they started going to other materials such as cement construction, which is what you still see today for a lot of the big grain elevators that are left. But the unique wooden elevator, which was the original design, we're very lucky to have one of these left. There were probably thousands across the Great Lakes at one point in time. And as far as we can tell, we're one of maybe a few that are left, but we think might be the only one that's left on the Great Lakes. It's kind of interesting that these granaries, when you start reading about
3: them, they were actually built like seven miles apart because they were the distance that a farm team, when they were first built and farmers were taking wagons full of crops, they were built far enough apart that the horse could make that journey to the granary and back to the farm in a day. Hmm. And when you take uh, my husband and I just took a train out west this Thanksgiving, and you can almost set your clock by how far along this Empire Builder train goes through Montana. And every seven minutes, the train is going about sixty miles an hour. Every seven minutes, you come to a grain elevator along the railroad track. Mm. So it's it's just it's part of our country's history. It's
1: mm-hmm. now it's described in um, some archive. Writing like around the 1902, 1903 period as really being a bustling center of commerce. So buildings, you know, serve their utilitarian purpose, but then also it's kind of a cultural icon. Like it gives you some understanding of where we came from.
3: Absolutely. I I think that's what, you know, being involved in this project for so many years. And this
1: is Laurel speaking, just so where Beth and Laurel sound a little bit alike. So
3: this is Laurel. We've we've worked together for so long now. (laughs) Yes. So it was a center of commerce and it's sort of interesting we don't unfortunately right now and I we hope this changes we don't have a lot of primary materials like the old log book that must have existed at one time when the farmer brought you know the crops there must have been an old probably cool leather book that you know the weight was written in and the date and all of that we don't have that and we don't even have a lot of photos we have we have some photos and we're getting more But, you know, all we can think is that it was sort of like going to the grocery store at the time. You know, who takes a picture of themselves at Pick and Save? (laughs) Probably there'll be no pictures existing of, of people going to the grocery store. So, but it really was the... Center of is, you know, it was where you went and talked to your people that you maybe wouldn't see other than downtown, find out how their crops were, find out who got married during the year, who had a baby, what sure. the new methods of farming are. Right. Um, and they also set the buy and sell prices at. Brandeis was a really, as Beth said, was a a really um, astute business owner and that granary was the most progressive and always getting the newest technology of the day and set buy and sell prices, which allowed the farmers to have some control over their you know, economy. Okay. So it's a
1: bustling center of commerce for a period of time. Beth, what is that period of time? Like when did the grain elevator close? When did the co-op move in? Can you like catch us up to where we are today?
2: Yeah. So it really served as the center of community for a long time. There was a, a brewery down there, a condensory, You know, all sorts of agricultural industry was located in that area. So as Laurel said, you you met people there. It's where you learn the news of the day. Over time, you know, things changed. So new technology became available. They started building, you know, bigger cement granaries that you, you know, still see on some of the Great Lakes already today. And then after World War II, so the Tulis the and Brandeis families owned the granary for most of that time. It, when Isidore and Arthur, who were partners at the time, when they passed away, their sons carried on their partnership for just a few years, and then they separated. And so Tulis took the granary that was on the east side, and Brandeis kept the granary, which is the Door County Granary, on the west side. And they operated that through the war. I think both of those were operated through the war, So, after World War II, and before that, wooden granaries had come out of fashion, but after World War II, the government gave subsidies to the farmers to build their own grain silos. So, that enabled the farmers to store their own crops, and at the same time, there was money being put by the government into the the highway system across the United States. And so the ability for a truck to get into a farm to pick up that grain and not have the farmer have to haul it that seven miles that Laurel was talking about to the grain elevator really simplified that process. And that was a big, you know, change in the industry at that time. So that was kind of the downfall of the the wooden granary. And that's why you see all those granaries, you know, on your trips out west. You see them. They're all in various states of disrepair and, you know, falling down or, or they're gone. And we have a unique opportunity at this point in Door County to to save one of these icons of American history.
1: And so these weren't actually the, the granaries that you see today in the corn and soybean belts across this country that are still, you know, these massive granaries, these massive silos. So, so this was the wooden granary, the end of the wooden granary, and newer technology came along and as you were describing.
2: Exactly, and you didn't need as many of them. These big cement you know, monoliths that you see out there, there's less of those because they could be further apart and they can store more and distribute more grain.
1: So once, once it stopped being a granary, what happened from there?
2: So when it stopped being a granary, the Brandeis family sold it to the Door County Co-op, and it became part of the co-op for quite a while, and we're always interested in hearing stories from people that had visited the co-op, and I hear from a lot of people that their family or their dad would take them there to go pick up hay for their horses, so there was still business being done out of there up until the early 2000s when it was then closed, so it was going, and it served a purpose for quite a long period of time there were warehouses over there. So, Tulis and Brandeis had quite a operation. They had huge warehouses, the granary. Sometime in the 40s, there was a fire and the warehouses burned down, but the granary was saved. So, that was kind of what the transition was from the, the Brandeis family to the co-op and then eventually to the city.
1: Okay. So, the early 2000s, and then the building goes quiet. And the building sits there in its original location. Now, I left Door County in 2008, mid-2008, and it wasn't even on anybody's radar in terms of what was going to be happening with this building. And then when I got back just a couple years ago, suddenly there's this massive project. So, Laurel, can you walk us back in time to the moment when suddenly we want to save this building, this cultural icon? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> I will try. Okay, um, Yeah, I lived in Sturgeon Bay, and I have to say that in my mind, it was sort of a 75-feet-tall building that was hidden in plain sight. We drove by it all the time. There were kind of ramshackle, tacked-on additions around it. It was a dilapidated part of the city that you really didn't pay all that much attention to if you weren't mm-hmm. going there to buy your your. Animal feed. I mean, it really was a bygone, it was part of the last economy, and we mm-hmm. were transitioning to a tourism economy. So it was kind of, you know, there like a sore thumb. But when it was first pointed out to me that it was a kind of cool building, I honestly had to say what what building, mm, and then I had to sure. look again and see like, oh yeah, there is what what is that? And you know, if you don't know how a granary works or how significant it is, the challenge for those of us who have started to learn about it is that once people do see and know the significance, then it tells such a, a huge story, and mm-hmm. you just it becomes more and more valuable to you as somebody who loves Sturgeon Bay and Door County. Sure. But at the time, it was just an old, dilapidated-looking building. Although, when the city bought the property, which is what happened, the city bought it from the co-op okay. um, with the plans of developing the property. Okay.
1: What year was that? Do you remember?
2: I believe it was around 2012. That's about the time I think it was included in some of the plans. That it was it was indicated as it was sturdy. It was able to be rehabilitated and repurposed. And so it was at that point in time. It was part of the overall design plans for the for the city. Right. When the
3: city first started working, I think it was with Vandewall and Associates, I believe.
1: And is yeah. that on the West Waterfront redevelopment plan? So it was a part of that at the beginning? Um, it wasn't.
3: That was a, a different a iteration different of you. the different iteration of the plan. But yes, like there was an architect that firm recognized that they're could be value to having that granary, like maybe somebody would want to put a brewery in there, or okay. And my understanding, or what I remember hearing, is that our mayor Thad Birmingham, who later was opposed to keeping the granary, was one of the people who voted at the time to hmm. allow it to stand, and he maybe regretted that later. But mm. there was a it, it lived through that first kind of when the other parts of the buildings were taken down. Okay. It, it remained, so it became people became aware of it the council
1: became aware of it maybe it showed up a little bit so it survived that first
3: yes glance yes. we'll call Right, it survived that. And then at some point, they asked for proposals from the community for ideas of what to do with it. And I think that was about 2014 or 15. That's when I first started getting involved. And I and a friend of mine, Dan Collins, I remember we went to the council and pitched an idea of a shared office space. Okay, But that was way, and there were three other. Somebody had an idea for a brewery, and I can't remember what the third one was, but and none of them at the, t- and it was a quick, we had to do something very, pull together a plan very quickly. And the council, the Waterfront Redevelopment Authority, I believe it was that entity, you know, didn't really see the future of any of those ideas. And about the same time, a group started really looking into the history of the granary. And we hired somebody to, a, a historian who had written numerous proposals for the historic registry. Okay. And we were able, a donor in in Door County provided, a donor family provided some funds so that we could afford to have a proposal written to see if we could get the granary listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Okay. Which, fast forward, we did. We were successful, which was really good. But it was very, at the time, it felt very, very controversial. Also being like, kind of, I, I was raised you know, to follow the rules to mm-hmm. as a good girl. You know? And we knew that the city, there were people in the city who did not want it listed on the city leaders who did not not want it listed on the national registry because it shows that it has value. A greater significance. Greater, sure. Yep.
1: Yeah. So that happened in 2017 and it was put on the national register. I was, you know, taking a look at some of the, the past stories on that. And it looked to me like simultaneously with the 2017 National Registry listing, there was an order to raise the building.
3: (laughs) Am I right thinking of that correctly, or well, a lot of things happened at once during these months. Okay, um, I've often thought if I wrote a musical ever or a you know. Novel or something, I would call it, on the way to saving the granary, (laughs) because so many things happened. It actually got listed on the registry. It was more when we received the million and a quarter dollar donation donation. okay. Shortly, like almost immediately thereafter, there was a raise order. okay, Because somebody had, we never found out who it was an anonymous phone call and it thought that they saw the granary list or you know move by a eighth of an inch. It was really discouraging because there were a lot of people who had given a lot of time, a lot of money to get to the point we were at, where it was okay. a, on the historic registry.
1: Sure. Now, were you on the common council at that time? You did run for that, and was this the <laughs> issue that caused you to do that, or was it something completely separate?
3: Well, I think what happens is you start paying attention to things that really seem to make no sense, and if you, you know, you start looking around, you're like, "This is seems Crazy. This seems, uh, this doesn't makes, this makes no sense to me. And somebody should do something about this. And I was at that point, how old? 54. My kids were grown. My mom was fine. She didn't need me. I had a, a part time job at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, who, it probably is, I should probably run for office because I care about the fact that. You know, at at first I cared about the building and I cared about the fact that people wanted to tear it down, but I saw it had significance. Mm -hmm. But then you start to realize, you know, there's some injustice going on here and things are happening that don't make sense. And we need people to be asking some questions.
0: This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Keewanee Counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. So you wanted to
1: learn more about how these decisions were actually made. So it wasn't just the fact that you know, the destiny or the fate of this building didn't look very good. It was how do you make those decisions and how do we move forward? So what year did you actually join the Common Council?
3: I ran for council. I was elected in 2017. Okay, so 2017, same time that all of this is going. So let's
1: fast forward a little bit, hop and skip and jump over a couple of years To the part where we're actually going to be able to move this building.
3: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Before we do that, can I just add one more thing? Oh, absolutely. in addition to all of that that was happening politically in the city, at the same time, many of the same people were looking into the fact that the land that the granary was on, which was a dock initially and that was a dock. it was built there on purpose because ships could pull up and then a railway spur went by it too so we had sure. you know horse carts ships rail carts every form of transportation could make it to that granary okay but it was on a dock and that means that now that it's not it means that that was filled land so in addition to the other things that had to be done on the way to saving a granary is we had to uphold the state constitution to protect the public trust doctrine, and we had to win a lawsuit and a challenge, and that was incredibly stressful, Hmm. time-consuming. Lawsuits, you know, when you hear about lawsuits against big corporations or um, municipalities, it, it means it's a lot of work on a lot of people's part, and so that was happening too.
1: Okay, so I imagine that other things, like nothing could happen with the building as we were going through, you know, all of that kind of stuff so it was sitting there waiting for these legal issues to be resolved Mm -hmm. and and they were in in favor of the granary correct in favor of the granary in favor of public land in public land okay Uh so can you give us a little you know a, a like a very short cliff note version of what those decisions meant
3: well yes so what was established was what is called the ordinary high water mark mm-hmm. and anything above the ordinary high water mark is privately developable everything waterward of the Ordinary High Watermark. And I, I think it's funny that for a little town of Sturgeon Bay, pretty much everybody started knowing what OHWM is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. It just would roll off our tongues. <laughs> oh, it's Ordinary High Watermark. <laughs> well, we, yeah, we all we all learned a lot through that process. But um, what is the Ordinary
1: High Watermark for those people who don't know what that term right. is? Right.
3: So that is the... Point at which the water has been its highest, and okay. it, you can look back at old historic maps to determine that. Mm-hmm. There's also Dork Honey was surveyed in 1835 by Sylvester Sibley, and those original surveys are brought into. The equation too, and then they look at you know when if the water's been higher than those original surveys, you can set that's the highest point the water's been, and any land that is below the ordinary high water mark. This is all over the country. Sure, this goes back to like the Magna Carta in mm. England. It's super. It's so geeky, but it's so fun.der <laughs> Anything below waterward of that point is considered land that belongs to the public. Sure, so that's our land. So when you go to Jacksonport Park and there's signs that say you can't walk past the edge of the park along the water mm-hmm. that's not true hmm. that land is your oh, land that's interesting mm-hmm. it's very interesting you can't go above the ordinary high water that's private land but okay. you can certainly walk along the shoreline
1: huh because yeah I, yeah, I do always stop at those signs mm-hmm. so they work for me so <laughs> <laughs> alright so, so then you the decision was in favor of the granary and so then can we fast forward to when it was being moved or are there other things still sure that I, were land yeah.
3: And the decision wasn't so much in favor of the granary, but it meant that the, the land was no longer seen as privately developable. So then, then we did have to have, we still had to go through a process with the waterfront committee, the West Waterfront Committee, mm-hmm. to determine that you know this is going to be public land is the granary going to be on it or not and that was okay. another hurdle that we had to get over
1: so there are all these little challenges along the way so it's kind of like these these steps that you have to take you jump this hurdle and then you continue moving forward
2: absolutely and that's kind of when i got on and board this is fast. <laughs> this is Beth again. When I came on board, I, I came on board first as a volunteer because I was watching, and I was a little late in the game. But as I was watching what was happening, similar to what Laura was talking about, and like something's not right, like right, like. And um, I grew up in Chicago, and you know, all the public waterfront in Chicago is a wonderful place, right? And there's museums and beaches, and you know, it's it's open to the public, and it's one of the things I think that makes that city great. And uh, I thought, wow, what a what an asset for Sturgeon Bay to have right here on the waterfront. And I had always noticed the building. So maybe when you live here, you don't notice it. It just becomes part of, you know, what you always know. But when we came to town, I always saw it. And I thought, what a cool building. And I'm glad they're going to save this and and restructure it. And then when I saw it was going to get torn down, it was, you know, kind of a, a sad moment. But this group of people that really... And I think, you know, the granary got tied into this ordinary high water mark issue, but this group of people that really went out there and fought for the public, for our rights to the water was just amazing. And I, and I wanted to, you know, be a part of that. So that was probably
1: about what, 2018, 18. 20, okay. Mm-hmm. So 2018. So then the granary moves to the West side in June, 2019. So it goes... Over the bridge and from the east side because it had moved to the east side first and then back over to the west side. Right. So it was originally on the west side. Yep. yep. And then it moved to the east side.
3: Right. So, okay. It's going to be placed back on its original pilings with some modifications, but it's going to be placed back on its original spot, which is really significant because of the location oh, sure, with access to the canal and, and all of that.
1: Which is interesting because the wooden posts, they're putting the pilings in right now and they're actually going in the same location as the original wooden
2: posts. The pilings are Beth. yeah. This is Beth. the, the <laughs> pilings are in, I, I believe, new locations. So the actual pilings that are going into the the ground uh, that will hold up the foundation are in a new. Will, they'll be in a new spot. So those will be holding up and, and sturdy for the foundation. The columns that are inside the granary that held up the first floor, we saved all those. So when the granary was moved the first time over to the east side to save it as much stuff was saved, it had already been start to be dismantled. The first floor was taken off. And so we were able to come in and get as much as we could as part of that demolition. So we saved all the original columns uh, that were part of that first floor. And those are currently actually in Tennessee in a wood specialist company that does this kind of thing. They're old growth, hand-hewn timber. They were shipped over, we believe from the UP. And so, or from over on the.
3: I think from it? the Marinette area, Marinette. from like down the Menominee River, the, yeah. like people went over in 1901 to get this wood in order to build the granary. It's pretty cool.
2: And so that is being repurposed and it needed a little bit of repair, but it was in pretty good shape. So our engineer, Jeff Bean, put together all the specs for the repair and those were shipped on to Tennessee and they're being worked on right now. We did receive a grant for that from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So that was a wonderful recognition that we got from them, that this is a historic building worthy of saving. And we'll be putting those columns, will go right back exactly where they were as part of the original granary.
1: So we are now at that stage where things are happening. You held the groundbreaking before the year ended, and you are working toward, I believe, a June deadline that you have with the city of Sturgeon Bay. In a lease agreement, that sublease agreement that came out of those decisions that were made about the ordinary high water mark. So you are going full steam ahead right now with construction. Can you both talk a little bit
2: about what the plans are for the granary? Yeah, this is Beth again. And the plans for the granary eventually are to have this be a museum, a living museum. So having a fully interpreted granary, which there really isn't anything like that in the country. So having that be unique to our area, fully interpreted granary, as well as paying homage to our agricultural history And having that sit next to the Maritime Museum, I think is just such, you know, just has a wonderful synergy between the two. You know, timber came here, one of the first industries, and then it was maritime and agriculture that built the community as we know it in, you know, all of our small towns in Door County today. And so having those two sit together, paying homage to our maritime history as well as our agricultural history. And then have the ability to have that be a public cultural center as well. It's on public land. It belongs to the public. So to have people come in to be able to have classes. I just was on a session the other day that the Climate Coalition did about uh, regenerative agriculture. I'd love to see things like that, displays, rotating exhibits come in and be a part of what that building is going to be. So even though it's sitting on public land, the building is owned by the Historical Society. And I do want to be really clear about that because I think a lot of times people talk about our tax mm-hmm. money is being used to to pay for, you know, the, this granary and it's not. This is purely funded by private donations. And we're seeing, you know, donations come in from all over Door County and beyond. Green Bay, Pennsylvania, St. Louis. So this really is not just a local treasure, although it is a local treasure, just from the history of the families that built it and what it did for our community, but also on a broader basis as well. So now this
1: building is uh, the first phase of construction is going to be done by June. And at that point, will it be open to the public for them to be able to use it? Like at what
2: stage will it be? So this is Beth. Our intent is to have the building open to the public right away. So it won't be completed. We won't have the probably the whole interpretation you know, done. We're still fundraising for that. But our agreement with the city and we're on target with that right now. Hold out for some good, you know, better weather this winter. But we're on target. Um, we're working with Green Fire Construction and we should see the first four completed. We will be having an addition as part of that. We have public bathrooms available as part of our agreement um, with the city to provide for the West Waterfront. And we're looking at you know some solar options for sustainability, but primarily just having the, the addition and the first floor of the building open and have it return back to its original spot. The addition will, this is Laurel, um, the addition will
3: include a catering kitchen as well. And what we're envisioning is that this is the type of venue that you might have a class reunion at. You might have a business meeting, a convention, breakout sessions there. We could have a tent next to the granary so that you could have a larger wedding. It could be a wedding venue. There's going to be just great views from inside the granary, and then the ambiance of this old growth wood and the bins upstairs. The first phase will be occupancy and will fulfill our development agreement with the city. The second phase is exciting too. That's going to be access to the upstairs so that you can see the 19 bins, the man lift that people pulled themselves up to the distributor floor where they could move the shoots around into the different bins. Okay, so that'll be more like the
1: interpretive history part, the yep. phase two. Yep. So the way you talk about the use of this building it kind of seems to me like the crests in Egg Harbor, where so many different things are held. I happen to do yoga there, but there's always Mm -hmm. venues, public committee meetings, and baby showers, and weddings, and
2: all kinds of different events. So do you envision that? Yeah, we want to see it come back to be the hub of the community again. So it was, you know, that's where it was when the Farm communities were coming yeah. together there, and we'd love to see that happen again. I'd love to do yoga there. I think it would be beautiful. Yeah. So the first floor is going to have big open windows onto the bay and onto the side, so there'll be a lot of natural light coming in. The headhouse will be coated in a, a polycarbonate, and the headhouse is the very top of the granary so that'll also be bringing in natural light. You know, we want to see kids coming in and really understanding how things used to be done back in the day and, you know, running up the stairs, running up to the headhouse, moving moving the shoots for the bins around. We'd love to have like a thing where you can roll a coin down into one of the bins and see how far it goes down. Different things that makes it interactive and fun for learning, but also have it that place where people can come and Do yoga, play cards, have craft meetings, and we have the ability to have both public as well as private events. So the private events, weddings or reunions, that'll help us support the granary and make it the revenue sustainable for the rest of the year.
1: So in the interest of making new endeavors easier to do, did you guys look at the Crest Pavilion and how they are set up operationally so that you know what
3: you're going to be looking at in the future? Yes, absolutely. They were really, we appreciated the help we got from them. That was one of the models that Mm. we looked to because it had just been done. Mm -hmm. So part of what we knew that we had to do in order to sell this project to our fundraisers too Mm -hmm. uh, and to show that it is sustainable is to come up, as Beth referenced, a budget that shows that we would have revenue from private events. And I guess we're thinking at some point it'll operate maybe more like the Miller or like Crossroads or like the Door County Land Trust where you have an annual membership program that helps support the revenue that you get from from the events. Or we also have an endowment built into our campaign goal so that there's some amount of revenue from an endowment too. So we have a really... I think, well, very carefully crafted budget that will allow this to be a sustainable venture going forward.
1: Okay. So now this project, the granary is owned by the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation. The land underneath it is owned by the the public. We'll call it the state. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you have a lease with the city of Sturgeon Bay. So as you mentioned, Beth, this is not taxpayer money. I was coming to a point with all of this this is not taxpayer money mm-hmm. that is paying for this it is fundraising so can you talk a little bit about the fundraising and where
2: you are sure so we are we've been actively fundraising this last year i think covid kind of put us a little bit behind you know there's a lot of uncertainty at times and people weren't sure, you know, what to do with their funds and were they going to need them or there were some, you know, some other organizations that were with people struggling with, with COVID. So we really hit the ground running this year and have had a successful fundraising campaign. We've had some, several significant leadership gifts. The most recent one was an anonymous donor that donated $100,000 for our match campaign that we've almost met that just within the 6 weeks or so that we've had that running and we've you know we still have a long way to go uh, to get to that interpretive museum but we've got you know we've started construction so we have enough to get us through this first phase but we're still you know always open to to leadership gifts to people that want to help and volunteer and we've seen a lot of positive Input. I think people finally understanding the project and why it's important to save this granary and why we have the opportunity to do it now. And once people realize that we've seen a lot of minds change and a lot of significant people come on board to this project, which has been pretty exciting.
1: And that was Beth Renstrom, Executive Director of the Granary Project. And she was talking today with me and Laurel Hauser, who is Vice President of the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on today. This is Deborah Fitzgerald. I'm with the Door County Pulse Podcast. And thanks for listening, everyone.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse Podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.